Thank you, Rick. Go with me uh, into prayer, please, as we begin the study for the evening. Gracious Heavenly Father, at any opportunity we have, Father, to study and preach your word, we are blessed, and we thank you for that opportunity this evening. I thank you, Lord, that you've given so many men and women a hunger for your word in this fellowship, that there are still those, Father, who know your word is exalted, even above your name, that your word, Father, is the one way by which men may be saved, that your word, Father, is a lamp unto our feet and the only way by which we may be molded into the image of your Son. Father, it is your word that you have given men that we may know you and be known by you, that we may imitate your Son and that we may be glorified one day. For it is your word, Father, that created all things. It is your word, Father, that sustains all things. Father, it is your word we desire because it is you. And it is you we desire. Father, I thank you for your word. And I pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit would speak through me, that what we speak here tonight would honor your word and be according to your will. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, thank you for inviting me back. In fact, if you are glad to see me again, praise the Lord. And if not, please talk to Cy. It was one week ago that I stood up here and taught the beginning night on our series, The Sovereignty of God, a series we're calling Thy Will Be Done. And it was that first night that I used to explain the purpose of this series, why I think this series is so important. If you remember, I said we're going to be examining scriptures here each week that I teach, scriptures that will help teach us about God's work in this world and about our partnership with Him in that work. And this week, we're going to actually delve into a specific aspect of God's sovereignty, something I promised we would do. This week, we're looking at His sovereignty in prayer, a lesson I am titling, Shall I Hide What I Shall Do? Let me begin by stating that I'd have to be incredibly arrogant to believe that I could teach you all the Bible has to say on the topic of prayer and do it in about 60 minutes. But, of course, I was born in Texas, so I thought this is no problem. But seriously, I mentioned on the first night that I'm not trying to do that. I'm not trying to canvas the entire topic of prayer. In fact, I'm not even trying to canvas the entire topic of God's sovereignty. That's not a, a point I'm trying to make in this teaching My purpose is much more specific than that. My purpose in trying to go through this series with you is to consider some aspect of our relationship with God, whether it be prayer, whether it be healing or other issues as we agree to go through them, and learn what we can about God's sovereignty in those various areas by focusing on passages of Scripture that I think best illuminate that issue. And so the focus is on the Scripture. It's not on what I say, hopefully. It's not on what others have said, I hope. But it's on what the Bible says, on what the Bible teaches, on what the Word of God says about this topic. That's my goal anytime I teach. So we're going to go look at places in Scripture where we can see God's sovereignty in action, and specifically tonight where we can see prayer in action. And as you recall, I said last week, 
that my principal purpose in teaching this series is to stand against what I think I see in the world today, which is a tide of unbiblical teaching, and particularly unbiblical teaching as it deals with God's sovereignty. And I said that much of that teaching actually works by diminishing God, reducing him to a genie, somebody we control, somebody that responds to us rather than the other way around. Teaching that leaves the impression that God is merely waiting on us like a servant, waiting for our first and last request, waiting for anything we might imagine we want, and he'll respond to our needs. So allow me to remind you that many Christians and even potential Christians at this point are growing up with this perspective because they're hearing it from everywhere you can turn. They're thinking God can be manipulated, he can be cajoled, he can be bargained with, that he can even be compelled to act according to our will. And they believe that God's will can be bent to conform to ours. That's what a lot of Christians believe. And if you doubt that, ask them. Ask them what they think happens when they pray, for example. And I don't think they would say in so many words, well, I'm changing God's will or that I'm making him do what I want. They may not say it that way, but I would imagine many people, and perhaps some in this room here tonight, believe that we can, in fact, influence God's purposes, that we can influence his thinking, that we can influence his eternal plans, and that, at least as it may pertain to our own circumstances, we can change his mind. Is that what you think, by the way? Is that what we think? That God's mind is changed by us, by his creation. Well, the simplest place to start, of course, is the scripture. And to acknowledge that God has instructed us to pray. Clearly, you can go to many places. Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be known to God. That's clear direction out of Scripture. Paul goes on in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Pray without ceasing, he says. Pray without ceasing. James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. You've heard these verses, surely. So we know we are supposed to pray. Christ himself is seen throughout the Gospels praying to his Father. Some cases staying up all night in prayer. So prayer is not only good, it's not only helpful, it's necessary, it's commanded. If you're a Christian and your prayer life is not where you think it should be, that's disobedience. No less than the disobedience of any other character trait of a Christian life being left unattended. So we know we're supposed to seek God for the intentions that we have. But does the fact that God tells us to pray to him mean that God changes his mind in response to our petitions? Many Christians would say yes. In fact, and tell me if this isn't you maybe, God must be changing his mind. Otherwise, why bother to pray? Right? Why bother to pray unless it is changing God's mind? Right? If you're honest, you've had that thought. Maybe you still have it. Numbers 23:19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? 1 Samuel 15:29. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. And there's others I could take you to. 
But those are clear. Those are plain. God does not change his mind. In verse from Numbers, God is speaking through Balaam to Balak, stating that God's direction for him to bless Israel and preventing him from cursing Israel was unchangeable. That he couldn't stop it. God would never change his mind like a man is prone to do. In the other verse, in Samuel, we hear the prophet Samuel telling Saul that he has lost his throne to a better man, to David. And though Saul didn't like it and he cried over it and wanted it changed, Saul, uh, Samuel responded to Saul saying, God cannot change his mind. Period. You know, what's interesting is these verses not only state the fact that God doesn't change his mind, they also explain why. Because God is not a man. God is not a man. You understand, God does not exist as a man exists. God is not inside his creation. He is not bound by time like you and I are. Consider your own experience, and I think you'll understand why God can't change his mind. If I were to come up to you and I were to say, I promise I will paint your house for you for free. Well, first you'd be thrilled and thankful. And if you knew me, you'd be shocked. And you'd be happy about the thought that I'm going to come and do what I said I'm going to do. But then a week passes, I don't show up, I haven't painted your house yet. And of course, you're still expectant, but now, now maybe you're doubting a little, aren't you? Am I really going to do it after all? Now, remember, I never mentioned when I was going to do it. I never promised a date. And you have no way of really knowing when it's going to occur. But the very fact that a week of time has already passed is enough to produce at least a little doubt in your mind. And then a month passes and I haven't shown up and painted your house. A whole month has gone by now. And of course, at this point, you're pretty sure it's not going to happen. You're pretty sure that I wasn't really going to paint your house like I promised to. And if you'd known how much I hate to paint, you never would have trusted me to begin with. But what really changed? Why did we begin to doubt the promise? I mean, nothing has happened to change my original words. I haven't come to you and retracted my promise. I'm still alive, presumably. I still have use of my arms, presumably. Why is it that you doubt I'm going to come through on my promise simply because a month of time has passed? We doubt because, number one, we know human nature, and number two, we understand instinctively that time is the enemy of any promise, don't we? Time brings change. Time brings opportunity for men to reconsider what they've said. Time brings opportunity for new information to come into the picture. Time brings opportunity for circumstances to intervene. Maybe I get sick. Maybe I lose my job and I no longer have the money to do what I asked to do. Maybe I just change my mind. But whatever the thing is that made that promise not be fulfilled, it's attributable to time. Something happened between when I said I would do it and now that makes me not want to do it anymore. When time passes, we begin to doubt a promise because we assume something's changed. But God doesn't live within time. He already exists in the future every bit as much as he exists now in the present. In fact, there is no new information available to God. There's nothing he doesn't already know. There's nothing acting upon him. Nothing that can influence him. Nothing that he hasn't already considered. Nothing that isn't under his control. There's simply no basis for God to act or think differently tomorrow than he did today. Because he's already considered everything when he made the promise in the first place. And in fact, he already knew the words you were going to use in the prayer that you put before him 
When you asked for him to do that thing you wanted him to do. And he considered those very words of that prayer when he decided how he was going to act in that moment. Remember the words of Christ in Matthew 6. He says this in 6-7. When you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose they will be heard for their many words. But listen to this. He says, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. Here's a flash, folks. When you pray to Him, it's not new information. It's not something He has already heard. And it's not something He didn't already know you were going to ask for when you asked for it. Because God lives outside of time, time does not change him. Therefore, we can't change him. We can't change his mind. It doesn't need changing. So why do we pray to a sovereign God? Why do we pray to a God who will not be changed by prayer? And if you've been praying to God because you think your prayers will change his mind, you may now be wondering if there's still any purpose to do that. And that brings us to tonight's passage. Open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 18. Now we're going to jump into the middle of this chapter. And so I want to give you a little background. In chapter 18, we have Abraham and we have Sarah. At this point, they're living in Canaan, and they have been for some time. And in this story, in chapter 18, they're entertaining guests, specifically three men. Three men who came to them at their tent and brought them some fantastic news. They told Abraham and uh, Sarah that they're going to have a son within the year, a son they're going to name Isaac. Now, Abraham didn't know who these three visitors were, at least not at first. We find out through the text, though, that these three men, they're actually two angels, And Jesus himself, the Lord himself, pre-incarnate, prior to his first coming, appearing as a man. To Abraham's eyes, he sees three men, but in truth, it's two angels in Christ. And as they finish entertaining, as, as Abraham finishes entertaining these three men and they get up to leave his tent, here's where we pick up the story in verse 16. Then the men rose up from there and looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham was walking with them to send them off. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. And the Lord said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me. And if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom, while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. We're going to pause there for a moment. Now, as these three supposed men were preparing to leave Abraham, The scripture records God's words, words spoken to himself initially, but words spoken where Abraham could not hear at first. The words in verse 17 and 18 and 19, those three verses are words God is speaking 
to himself. Now, they're recorded here because through Moses, God chose that we would know what happened in this moment. But it's obvious from the text as we read through the story, Abraham did not hear those first verses. Now, God asks an interesting question. He says, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? You know, as the rest of the story demonstrates, this is really a rhetorical question, one that God never answers directly. And in fact, this is really no question at all. It's really a statement, isn't it? His statement is, I will not hide from Abraham what I'm about to do. I'm not going to hide. I'm going to reveal to Abraham what I'm about to do. God is determined to let Abraham know the work that's about to begin. And as we examine what God's about to do, we're going to need to consider some more background on this story in order to understand the circumstances. I don't know how familiar you may be with the story of Abraham. Many Christians are, but not all. Abraham at this point is living outside any city. He's living the life of a nomad. In fact, Hebrews calls him a wanderer. He has a tent, he has a flock, but he's not a part of any city, though there are cities, substantial cities around him. It's not as though he doesn't have the opportunity to live in a city. When he first left his ancestral home in Ur, called out by God many years earlier, he answered by going to a place that God would show him. And that call, that call that God gave to Abraham back in that day, included a very specific instruction. He was told to leave his family behind. Not his wife, because as married couple, they were one. They were one flesh. But certainly any other family should be left. That was the instruction God gave. And Abraham leaves, but he does decide to bring family despite God's instructions. He brings in, in particular a nephew, a nephew named Lot. Now, Lot's father had died shortly before this call that Abraham received. So legally, Abraham was probably responsible for Lot. But nonetheless, he brings Lot along. And it's very quickly that you see in the story that God's wisdom in telling Abraham to leave his family becomes apparent because this nephew, Lot, he's a pain in the neck. From day one, Lot is a difficult person to have in your camp. At the very earliest point in their time in the land, Lot and his herd compete with Abraham and his herd for the available grazing land. That starts to become a point of tension for their their caretakers, for the shepherds. So eventually they decide to part ways. Abraham tells Lot very graciously, you can pick wherever you want to go. You get first pick. And Lot looks down at the city of Sodom, a city that probably had a lot to offer somebody who was enticed easily. And he chooses to camp right outside the city, the city of Sodom. Eventually, we learn later that Lot actually moves into the city. He can't stand it anymore. He has to get closer to the action. And Abraham's troubles with Lot continue into chapter 14. In chapter 14 of this book, you find out that there are these kings from the north, led by this king Chedilomer, the big cheese, in other words. And he invades Canaan with these other kings. They ride into town. They start plundering city after city after city. Eventually, they get to Sodom, take the city captive, plunder it. All the people are taken slaves. And this king and his army ride out of town with the city of Sodom. Word comes back to Abraham. You're... Nephew Lot and his family have been taken captive by these kings. And Abraham does the only thing he can do for a family member. Rounds up 318 of the best men he has. Rides up into Damascus after the king. Eventually catches up. Divides his forces against any good military uh, strategist would tell you against any good military plan. But nonetheless, God arrives. Defeats the army. Abraham's successful. Brings all the family back. All the citizens of the city of Sodom. And returns them to the city. There's some more details in there. Go back and read it for yourself. I kind of summarized there a little bit. So in in chapter 18 now, we see God ready to act 
injustice against Sodom, with Lot now back in the city after his return by his uncle. But before God acts, he says rhetorically, I wonder, should I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Now, a couple of things you need to keep in mind as we move forward at this point. Number one, God's plan is fixed. God's plan is fixed. His resolve is firm. Sodom will be judged. It must be. His character requires justice, and his holy purpose intends to make Sodom an example for all time. Second Peter tells us this clearly in chapter 2, verse 6. He says, He condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. That was always his purpose. I think Christians often overlook, just as Abraham did in his day, that God is constantly at work in this world around us. Constantly. He's in work around you right now. And his, pers- his persistence is to make known to you this work, to his children, inviting them in to join him in that work. We only have ourselves to blame when we miss out on those opportunities to be a part of that work. With each opportunity we seize, however, we give the Father an opportunity to train us up in his ways. Just as God has said that he's about to do for Abraham here. Did you notice that in those verses I've read? God's reason for suggesting he wants to include Abraham in on the plan is that God has chosen Abraham as a man through whom God will bring many nations and through whom God will bless many nations. And God demands that Abraham be a man who will stand as an example to those generations, one who will walk in his ways, observe all his commands, and more than that, raise his children to do the same. That's God's goal for Abraham. And what he says is, I'm determined to teach Abraham so that he will fulfill these goals. And the way I'm going to teach him is to include him in on the work I'm doing around him so that he might benefit from participating with me in that work. Do you know our Father in Heaven is doing exactly the same thing any good father here on earth does? One of my favorite examples of this is the father who has a young child, let's say a son in this case, maybe about six or seven years old. And the father is about to go out into the garage and work on his car, work on the engine. And he turns to the son as he's walking out and he says, son, would you like to come and help me fix the car? And the son says, sure, daddy. Now, he may have said no. Sometimes the son will say, no, I'm too busy watching TV. And he says, I'm distracted right now. It's not something I really feel like doing right now, dad. And maybe the father lets him stay where he is. Who lost out? But for the son who says, yes, I want to help you, daddy. I want to be a part of it. Daddy says, great, come on out into the garage, son. And he opens the hood. He begins to work on the car. And he says, son, hand me that wrench. And the son hands him a screwdriver. No, no, son, it's the other one. No, the other one. Here, let me get it. This one. And then the son begins to say, well, daddy, let me do it. Let me do it. Okay, put your hand on the wrench. Try to, try to turn it. Nothing happens. Here, now try. Look, son, you did it. And before you know it, dad and the son have fixed the car. Now, let me ask you something. Do you think it took longer because the son helped or shorter? And do you think maybe it was a little more difficult and complicated for the father than it would have been otherwise? Do you think maybe they made a few more mistakes than they might have made if the son hadn't been involved? So why did the dad do it? What good is there in bringing along someone who makes the job harder? My wife often asks that about me. 
What good is there in bringing along somebody who's actually going to make the process more error-prone? Well, that makes no sense. It makes no sense if your goal is fixing the car. It makes perfect sense if your goal is fixing the sun. Our Heavenly Father is doing no differently with Abraham and with us than we do with our own kids. He's fixing the sun. His child, Abraham. Because, let me tell you folks, his plan doesn't depend on Abraham. And he doesn't need Abraham's help. But shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? That's equivalent to the father saying to the son, No, son, you can't know what I'm about to do in that garage. Stay in this room and watch TV. That's not love. (laughs) This is love. So in Abraham's hearing, God announces his plan to go down and visit Sodom and determine whether it is as sinful as he has heard it is. Now, of course, God already knew how sinful Sodom was. You know, he spoke honestly. He was going to go visit. He was going to go look through those angels at the state of affairs in Sodom. It wasn't a lie. But its purpose was not exactly what you assumed it to be if you think it's simply to find out what's going on in Sodom. His purpose for making the statement is obviously for Abraham's benefit so that Abraham would learn of the work that God's involved in around him. My wife and I used to do something similar with our kids when they were very young. If we knew their rooms were a mess and we wanted them to clean their room, one of us might announce loudly so that the kids would hear us something like, I have a treat for anyone who has a clean room. And I'm going to go look and see if I can find a clean room. And of course, immediately the children would just scurry down the hall and we would take our time walking slowly at the sound of things being thrown in the closet and under the bed. And and the kids had a reason to want to be involved because they thought there was something in it for them. Now, we knew the room was messy. That's why we said what we said. We didn't need to go look to actually determine if it was messy, though we were being honest. We were going to go look. I think my wife has taken this technique maybe a little too far. I was in the family room recently and I heard her yelling from somewhere else in the house, I have a treat for anyone who has mowed the lawn. I mowed it fast, though. And just as that example demonstrates, God knew what he would find in Sodom. He knew what would be there. But he wanted Abraham to share in that plan so that he might join in the work God had planned. Now, I want you to imagine for a minute Abraham's reaction to God's words. Abraham knows that Sodom is desperately wicked. I mean, its reputation is so bad, it's reached all the way to heaven. You think maybe it made it up the hill a few miles to Abraham? Abraham knows what's going on in Sodom. Even today, we use the term Sodom and Gomorrah to refer to a desperately wicked place, right? I could give you some examples, but I'll be nice. And Abraham also knows that his nephew Lot is living in that city. He knows that. And so as Abraham considers the situation, two things are immediately obvious to him in this moment. As he hears God's words, he says to himself, undoubtedly, that city is sunk. And my nephew is going down with the ship. And so he responds with one of the most dramatic examples of prayer given in the Bible. And before we read these next passages, make no mistake, folks, this is a prayer. It's a petition placed before the Lord by a man desiring God's favor. And the fact that you and I may pray in a closet, absent any physical view of the Lord, and in his case, Abraham may have been standing before somebody that looked like a man. That's no different. Prayer is prayer, and this is a prayer. Look at, look at it with me in verse 23. 
Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. And Abraham replied, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. Suppose the fifty righteous are lacking five. Will you destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. And he spoke to him yet again and said, Suppose forty are found there. And he said, I will not do it on account of the forty. And then he said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry. And I shall speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on the account of 20. And then he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry. I shall speak only this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 10. And as soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed, and Abraham returned to his place. Abraham's quite the negotiator, isn't he? I wish I could get him along in a couple of deals I fell through on. Abraham looks for a way initially to engage God, to get his attention, having heard what God has planned. And he does it in the proper way. He appeals to God's character, to his nature. God is never going to act against his holy and perfect nature. He cannot do that. And Abraham knew what we all should know, which is if we ask him, we are guaranteed to see our prayer fall on deaf ears if we ask him for something that goes against his nature and his character. But if we seek God's will according to his nature in a proper way, as Abraham did, In this case, appealing to God's perfect mercy and his justice, asking if God would indeed destroy the wicked along with the righteous. When we do that, we're appealing to what God will automatically do, to what he is naturally predisposed to do by his very character and nature. The obvious answer here is that by gaining God's attention through an appeal to his character, Abraham was guaranteed an audience. He was guaranteed God's attention. God will preserve the righteous and judge the unrighteous, the unrighteous being those without faith, the righteous being those who have faith. In fact, in that same passage out of Second Peter I read from earlier, that passage actually cites this very account in Genesis as proof that God does exactly that, that God saves the righteous while keeping the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Peter points to Genesis 18 and says, there's your proof that that's true. Well, after appealing to God's character, the next thing Abraham does is he begins to do what I guess you you might say is the best Monty Hall impersonation. He starts the, the bargaining process with God. He starts bargaining with God. First, he says, how about if you find 50 righteous? You read the story with me. 45. Down from 40, 30, 20, 10. He keeps going down the list, trying to bargain for the sake of Sodom, for the city of Sodom. What is he doing here? 
What is Abraham doing here? I mean, does he really care for the city of Sodom? Does he want to save the city of Sodom? You know what? If truth be told, I would bet you that Abraham would just as soon see Sodom destroyed. He doesn't want to see Sodom preserved. He's not a man who wants to see the unrighteousness of that city perpetuated. What does he care about? What does Abraham really care for? Lot and his family. That's what Abraham cares about. Lot and his family. What's he praying for? The city. The city of Sodom. Abraham, it appears here, was hesitant to ask for what he really wanted. It's almost as though he couldn't trust God to give him what he wanted. He had to bargain through some backdoor way to get what he thought he might want, what he might need. You know, Abraham fears that the only righteous family in that city might be his brother, his nephew Lot's family. That's what he's really afraid of. The only righteous person in that city might be Lot and his family. And so he bargains down to ten, and here's what I think he's assuming. Lot, his family, extended family, that might get you to seven or eight. Surely, surely a righteous man, and take no, make no mistake, the New Testament says Lot was a righteous man. And so Abraham says, surely, and all the time he spent there in the city, surely Lot must have influenced somebody. Right? Somebody in that city has had an influence from Lot. In fact, we hear in the story of Lot that he sits in the gate of this city. Do you know what that means? In ancient times, that's equivalent to being a judge, to being an administrator in the city government. He's a prominent person in, in Sodom. He's worked himself right up. Somewhere along the line, he influenced somebody, don't you think? And so Abraham is probably assuming that ten is close enough. Ten will get him what he wants. That city will be saved. Well, as the story unfolds, the angels arrive. They go down and do what God said he would do. He goes in and inspects the city. And, of course, what do they find? They find a depraved city. A city with no hope. And they find Lot in a position of prominence in that city. You know what I find interesting is they go down, they find this city, obviously depraved. That's going to seal the city's fate. Abraham, in the meantime, has prayed for the sake of the city on the basis of finding ten righteous, ten that come in part from, Abraham, from Lot's family and, and in part probably from people Lot has influenced. Why did he stop at ten, though? Do you know he stopped asking before God stopped agreeing? What if he'd asked for five? What if he'd asked for one? There's no indication that God was going to stop agreeing. How often do we do the same thing? How often do you and I go into prayer with any number of, of personal needs, and some of them selfish, yes, and what we do is we don't ask for what we really want because, you know, doing that makes us look foolish. I mean, I really shouldn't want that Corvette. I really shouldn't want that lottery ticket to come through. That can't be godly enough, so I'll pray for something else and hope that that's what I get anyway. And God agrees to some extent in what we ask for. We never really ask for the right thing, and so we never really know what he was going to do, at least not in response to our prayer. We ought to be honest with God because he knows anyway. He knows anyway. Well, let's jump essentially to the end of the story. Did God's mind change because of the prayer of Abraham? Because that's the question for tonight, right? Did Abraham change God's mind? Well, to summarize some of the story for the sake of time, the angels proceed to visit, as I said. They find what they knew they were going to find, great depravity. And then they warn Lot. They tell Lot, leave and take all your family with you because this city is about to be wiped off the map. And they give Lot one night to convince his wife and his daughters and his future sons-in-laws 
And Lot proceeds to try his best. The sons-in-laws have nothing to do with it. But the wife and the daughters, they seem to be ready to go. Let's pick up the story in verse 15 of chapter 19. 1915. When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him. And they brought him out and they put him outside the city. And when they brought them outside, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you and do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you will be swept away. How sad is it that a righteous man like Lot would be so attracted to such a depraved world even when he knew that staying in the city guaranteed his death. And yet, he hesitated. He hesitates knowing that death was certain. And may I ask you, why are the angels helping Lot anyway? Did God mention Lot? I don't remember God saying anything to Abraham about Lot. And we know Abraham didn't say anything to God about Lot. Where did Lot, why is God doing what he's doing to Lot and his family? I mean, didn't Abraham blow it? I mean, he didn't ask for Lot, right? He didn't ask for Lot's family to be saved. Didn't Abraham miss his chance? Isn't God going to only keep the bargain that Abraham asked for? And therefore, Lot's now in jeopardy. Why is he going to save Lot? Because... Just as Peter explained, God knows how to rescue the righteous from temptation. Because that's his nature. Because that's his character. You know, Lot couldn't compel himself to leave because he was too tempted. Too tempted by the world that he saw in Sodom to get up out of his chair and leave. He was too comforted by its riches and its pleasures. A word to the wise, that may be our problem too. But true to his word... God made the angels bring Lot and his family away from temptation. Now, I want you to notice something interesting. Where did Lot and his family end up? Where did the angels put them? Did the angels take Lot and his family and put them in safety? No. No. Look at the text. When they brought them outside, one said, escape for your life. Do not look behind you. And, of course, we all know what happened to Lot's wife. Do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you'll be swept away. But I thought the angels were saving Lot. No, they did what Second Peter said. They removed the righteous from temptation. And that they did. Now Lot's standing in the middle of a valley. But still in danger. If they didn't run, they were going to perish. God will remove your temptation, certainly. But he still directs you to take steps to escape from sin. And he still expects you to comply with that obedience, to escape sin, to escape its dangers, and to follow him to safety. And if you don't, your life's in peril. Not your eternal life, this life. Because sin has consequences. But back to the issue of prayer. Did Abraham's prayer work? Well, consider what Abraham prayed for. As we said, he prayed for the city. The city would be saved. Here's the bargain. The city would be saved if ten righteous were found. But only four were found. And so the city was destroyed. 
God gave Abraham exactly what he asked for. Good job, Abraham. Right? Abraham asked, if you find ten, city is fine. If you don't find ten, city is destroyed. He got what he asked for. And he got exactly what God promised. And yet God's plan to destroy the city came about exactly as God had planned it even before Abraham prayed. But wait, what did Abraham really want? He wanted Lot and his family saved, though he didn't ask for it. He never asked for it, and yet that's what God gave him. Remember, God knows what you want even before you ask for it. Even if we don't ask for the right thing. And God's character required that Lot and his family be saved, as Peter taught us in his letter. And that was required whether Abraham asked for it or not. So what did Abraham's prayer accomplish? Through that prayer, God bent Abraham's will to his. Not his will to Abraham's. God was going to destroy Sodom. God was going to save Lot. And he announced that he was going down there in such a way that Abraham would be interested in that work and would join it through prayer. Through prayer, he would join the work so that when the work was done, God would receive the glory. In the eyes of the men, God calls his sons and in the world. Did you notice how many angels went into the city? Two. In the likeness of men, each having two hands, God knowing that he was going to take out four reluctant sinners who each needed a hand from those two angels. God knew from the very beginning who he was going to save and how he would do it. He knew from the very beginning that city would be judged. And he knew how Abraham would pray. And somehow in his awesome majesty and wisdom, God knew how to make all of those things happen simultaneously, never conflicting once with anything he said or with his nature or even with what Abraham wanted, though he didn't ask for it. Who's sovereign here? I ask you. And God did all of this to train up Abraham in his ways, in his nature and in his character, in his divine purpose and in his sovereignty. And then he had it written down through Moses so that you and I could gain that same benefit. When Jesus gave us the model for prayer in Matthew 6, he began this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Those are declarative statements, folks. They are not requests. Listen to the words yourselves. They're not requests. They are not wishful thinking. They are facts on the page. You're starting that prayer with facts, with statements of truth. Jesus said, pray this way because they're true. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The first request in the Our Father, as we call it, doesn't occur until we say, give us this day. Up until that point, you're declaring the truth, the eternal truth of the God we serve. And our first request in prayer should be that we see God's will be done. And if he reveals it to us, then we can join him in that work. We can seek to know it so that we may be a part of it. And in requesting it, we give him the glory when it comes to be. You know, our God is so gracious and loving that he'll reveal his will to those who love him and desire to know it. And so that we may seek it, he is going to reveal his work to us in the events of our lives around us. 
And when you join in that work by praying for its very outcome, for God's very will to be done, then you'll know it. When it happens, you'll give him glory for it. And trust me, folks, this isn't a bad thing. The fact that you don't get everything you want is not a bad thing. The fact that you get what God wants is a good thing. The problem is not in what God does in response to our prayer. The problem is in what we ask Him to do, whether it's our will or His. Had Abraham prayed for God to spare the city forever with no conditions, if his prayer had just been, God, save Sodom, period, he would not have seen his prayer answered successfully, would he? Because to grant that prayer, God would have had to deny his very character by not judging the unrighteous. When you take time to examine the many verses related to prayer in the Scripture, you're going to find they each have a very common quality. I could quote you 10 or 20 of them, but rather than do that, let me just quote you one. One, one passage out of John 14. 14:13. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. How that scripture has been misused. How it has been misused. To ask for something in the name of another person was a very specific concept in the Far East and in the time that this book was written, that John was written. It had a very specific meaning. It meant you were standing in the very place of the person you represented. It meant that you were speaking on their behalf. It meant that you had their full authority, their full permission. And more than that, it meant you knew what they would have said had they been standing here instead. It meant you were so in tune with what they wanted, with their purposes, with their direction, that you could speak on their behalf because you knew you were speaking the same words they would have spoken if they had been standing there. It's, it's like being a lawyer, but with perfect knowledge of what your client wants you to say. If I speak in the name of somebody in the Far East, it meant I knew what they would say and I was speaking their words. So if you ask in the name of Jesus, it isn't just that you add his name to a sentence. It isn't throw his name in there and all of a sudden it's magical. And come on, we've all done that, right? Throw Jesus in at the end and it's a guaranteed sell. It's going to happen because he said, use my name and it happens. No, that's not what it means, folks. It means you haven't added his name to the sentence. It means you've added him to your life. And you know his will because you're walking in it. And you're not asking for things you want. You're asking for what he wants. And you know what? When you ask for what he wants, you get it. Because he will do what he wants. He will do what his purposes call for. I think so often we forget in this life that we live on earth, including the prayer life we have on this earth, that we exist for His glory and to do His will. Not our own. And when God answers our prayers, the very prayers that I believe He gives us through the Holy Spirit and through our circumstances, it's so often in those cases that we're so quick to steal His glory, aren't we? Even in something as subtle as saying, I prayed for it. So happy to hear you're healed. I prayed for it. We do that. And though we may not mean it, our words have meaning. Our words communicate our thoughts and our intentions. And when we tell people that it's our prayer that saved them, our prayer that helped them, there's no power in prayer, folks. There's only power in God. 
The power of prayer is not the power of your words. It's the power of a God who will do as his will directs. And when you pray in his will, you're the child in the garage. But you know what happens so often? That child who's been in the garage with his daddy and working on the car and they fixed it. And he comes in, that child that didn't know better. He turns to mommy and he says, Mommy, I fixed the car. And so often daddy would just smile, right? And let him say those words and know, and know that it made him feel better. But dad knows the truth. Mom knows the truth. The difference for us is when we do that, when we're that little child who walks in after helping God, and we say, I fixed the car. And God helped. I think God lets us get away with that. But only so long. Because just as that child will ultimately one day mature into a man, a man who knows better, a man who through his maturity can look back on that moment and say, it wasn't me. It was a loving father who let me think it was me because it helped me stay motivated and interested to be in his work. But there was a time to grow up. There was a time sooner or later when I had to stop looking at things like a child and realize that, no, it wasn't me. It was dad doing the work. And dad's the one who gets the credit for a loving relationship that brought me up to be the man I am. And brothers and sisters, in our relationship with the Lord, it's exactly the same way. If you're a child in the Lord such that you think you're doing this work Well, God's being gracious to let you hold that thought, but it's time to grow up. It's time to be mature in your faith and to realize that He does the work. He invites us in, but it's His glory and it's His credit that we should give. Because without Him, there's no work. Without Him, it's impossible for us to do anything. To Him go the glory. Father, We offer to you our sincere confession that on so many occasions in our own prayer, Father, we have taken the glory that you deserve. That so many times, Father, we have seen your work and told others that it was ours. That even at times, Father, when we knew it was your work, we felt the sin of pride because we felt we were a part of it. But, Father, we know so well from your word that it is your will that will be done by your power according to your holy purpose and eternal plan. And we are merely blessed, Father, by the fact that you choose to include us. I pray, Lord, that as we mature by the power of the Holy Spirit, that that maturing, Father, would not just grow us in knowledge of your word or insight into your work. It would grow us, Father, in humility to know that we do nothing and you do everything and where you give us opportunity, it is for our benefit to grow us and not to change you. I thank you, Father, for the word and for the time in it this evening and for the work of your Holy Spirit in those who hear it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.